and welcome to Early Childhood Ireland's podcast. Our podcast features interviews and discussions on all issues relating to quality early learning and care with a range of speakers who are leaders in the areas that matter to Early Childhood Ireland members. I'm Maura Corbett and I work with Early Childhood Ireland. In this episode, I'm really delighted to be chatting with Joni Barron. Following on from our last episode with Sharon Skehill, we wanted to continue this discussion with educators about children's participation being a fundamental enshrined aspect of practice every day, giving children real opportunities to participate in their settings. Joni has been working in the Irish early education sector for over 35 years now. She was instrumental in the setting up of Wallaroo Play School in Cork. And prior to this, she worked at Play Mountain Place in California. She initially studied at UCC and subsequently she did a postgrad in play therapy with the Roehampton Institute. Uh, for this final episode, I'm really pleased to be joined by, by Joni. I've known Joni a long time and her views and influence, um, her views and ethos have really influenced me a lot over that time. So, Joni, you're really welcome. Thank you very much, Maura. So, Joni, can you tell us, first of all, a bit about uh, yourself and your setting and uh, the establishment of Wallaroo and so on? I'd love to. Um, so, as you said, I have been working for almost 40 years in the early years sector. Um, I started out in Play Mountain Place in Los Angeles, California, um, back in the early 80s. And Play Mountain Place is. Um, a democratic free school set up in 1949 by Phyllis Fleischmann. Uh, Phyllis started off with a, a preschool back in 1949 and then developed a primary school because the parents didn't want their children to leave and eventually had a secondary school on the premises. Um, right now, Play Mountain Place still exists and it just has the preschool and the primary school. So I was there for three years. I did an intern year and then had a job as a, a head teacher for another two years, I suppose, honing my skills because working at Play Mountain Place was such a completely new experience for me. I had gone to Los Angeles with the express purpose of coming back to Ireland eventually to set something up. Um, something educational and I wanted it to be in some way alternative to the educational system that existed but I really didn't know what that would look like. So during my three years I was um, steeped I suppose in the humanistic education approach of Play Mountain. Um, their philosophy stems from a number of different sources, one of them being A.S. Neal's um, UK, United Kingdom schools um, that are democratic free schools. I can't remember the years he was doing that, but well, well into the 1960s. And I think um, Summerhill was his school that still exists in the UK today. So some of those ideas of, you know, the children being in charge of their own education and the children having a say in the running of the school were part of the approach of Play Mountain as well. And then the other major influence would be Carl Rogers. <clears throat> so Carl Rogers was a, a humanist uh, psychologist who, he developed the idea of person-centered therapy, which actually revolutionized uh, psychotherapy at the time back in the 1960s. 
And Carl Rogers was also very, very interested in education. So he had a varied career as a scientist, a therapist, and then his in his final years, he was very interested in education um, and how to make um, education person-centered. So I think even the idea of child-centered and that language comes from uh, Carl Rogers, who believed that within each person is the ability to solve their own problems. So all of us contain within ourselves the solutions to our own problems. And the teacher or the facilitator is a guide that helps to draw that out from the individual person. So those were two very strong influences. And of course, um, there was also an anti-bias approach. So there was a very strong um, ethos of respect for humanity and for all the different um, ways of being. So whether that was uh, people with different abilities or people from different backgrounds, religions, beliefs. Um, so that ethos was was pretty much what I was steeped in for the three years. And um, when I left to come back and set something in our, up in Ireland, because I could have stayed there, but I always wanted to come back and, and work at home and to do something here. Um, I came back in 1985 and I got in touch with the key co-op in Cork, who were um, an alternative setting within Cork City. They had quite strong political views and also, um, I suppose I felt that it matched some of the things that I would be interested. So I approached them about working with them because obviously I didn't have any money or any way to set anything up. So how to do that, um, you know, I, I got the support of the key co-op and through the social employment schemes, which later became the community employment schemes, um, a, a, few of us, a few of us started up Wallaroo in um, a building separate from the key co-op, but still a part of it. Um, at that time, the co-op was very interested in employing women because it was very difficult for women, especially women with children, to find employment. And so their approach was if we have 50% of employees being women, then we also should provide childcare. So I took that idea and with the idea of providing childcare, but also having it, you know, person-centered with a humanistic education approach, um, I started up Wallaroo with two other people. So that was the very beginnings of it. And we started just with the children from the key co-op employees. I think there was only about seven of them, but that was a good beginning. And we went from there and over the years um, developed and, you know, trained a lot of people in the approach and to the point where we were given some European funding to develop um, a course with UCC um, to train people in the humanistic education approach in early childhood. And I suppose that was kind of one of the key differences in Wallaroo at that stage was that while, you know, there were kind of family centres and other programmes um, supporting women to be able to work, your focus was on um, the, the needs and the rights of the children, as well as the, the, the needs and the rights of their parents. That's right. It, it very much was a, a, a rights-based approach. And um, I think I, I, you know, this idea of different types of words that we've been using over the years. So at the time, I would have called it the empowerment of children and you know, later on, we're talking about the rights of children, then we're talking about inclusiveness. 
Um, and now we're talking about the voice of children or children's participation. So the concepts are the same, but the, um, you know, the words are just changing and, and helping us to understand different ways of implementing um, the, the practices. And I suppose it's good, isn't it, to have um, material kind of policies and frameworks like the, the Lundy model and the framework, the national framework for children and young people's participation that's kind of backing that yes. up and I suppose giving a status to what you and what Walru have been um, implementing and inspiring people with for all those years. Yes, it's 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 fantastic to to have the language, you know, to have um, language and models, and to break it down into specifics, into different areas such as you know space, voice, you know, these things are really important, and to explain in detail what that means, and then how you can implement with with those different areas. Um, you know, I think in the early years, the the worry is that these are very young children; they're all under five in the early years and how can you implement you know how can you hear the ch child's voice and um what does that look like in practice so I was thinking of some of the examples um that that might help so you know um the Lundy model talks about space and I think space is really really important um so that can be looking at when children come into a space what are their needs within that space you know, because one of your other speakers said that not all children are homogenous. So, you know, you'll have children coming in on a given day who have a huge amount of energy and children who have a need to be quieter, who may be feeling a bit more fragile and maybe can't be around very loud noises. So how do you accommodate those within if you only have one room? That's going to be very hard. So it's really important that there is space and the appropriate kinds of spaces so that there are areas that can be divided off um, so that, you know, the child who really needs to be very, very noisy can be, you know, can be that way, but can be maybe encouraged to go to a space where that's possible and not disturbing the children who need to be quiet. So we've always had that outlet, if you like, in Wallaroo, where there was always a noisy room or that you'd have access to the outside so that the children who who are in a different um, emotional state from each other can be accommodated. And that's the same for all of us. You know, we're, from day to day, we can change and from different times of the day, we can change. Um, and also different personalities. Some children need a lot more of being able to do lots of big gross motor skill um, activities and also, you know, have their voices heard a lot more you know, in terms of sound and loudness and physical activity. Um, and it's important that they don't get squashed, but that they don't also impede um, the other children who have a need to be quieter and do maybe more relaxing, uh, slower, quieter activities that, you know, they don't often match those two things. So, so in that sense, I think space is really important. And it can, you know, it can rise and fall as the day goes on in response Absolutely. to, you know, kind of what's happening for them in their day, their interactions with the adults and the other children in their space and um, what's been happening at home that yes. varies throughout the day. 
Yes, yeah. And, you know, we, we, we were talking earlier about being child-centered, but I actually think it's about being individual child-centered because, you know, to think of child-centered, you think, oh, yes, all the furniture is low and they have access to everything. But that's a part of it. And that caters for most of the children in the setting. But at the same time, emotionally and socially, you know, maybe even in terms of their they're learning they're all in very different places and it's important to try and accommodate that on any given day and I suppose you know one of the greatest resources we have are our childcare staff our early educators um, and they need to be properly supported to be able to give that attention to the individual child um, and not have you know really big ratios uh, I suppose small small ratios of adult to child, you know, there needs to be enough so that, um, as um, I think it was Sharon was saying, that you have this, the ability to have the smaller groups and that that can be facilitated and the needs of an individual child can be facilitated on a given day or at a particular time. Um, so that's that resource of the, the child care staff is, is one, of, you know, there's space and then there's the resource of the people. These are the the two um, most valuable things that we have. And so really crucial that there's enough physical space and there's enough staff and, you know, well-qualified, experienced um, staff who have a good understanding of what their role is. And who have been su supported and in are supported. that ethos and understanding of, of the value of children's participation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that they're not expected to do that in stressful situations. You you know, if you do have two to 22, you know, how is that possible to really manage listening and supporting each child? You know, you're, you're, the tendency is to try and keep them as safe as possible in big groups and to try and get things done. Um, uh, but that's not going to to really help the child's participation if if you're you know just thinking in terms of how can I manage this large group of children um on a given day you know there has to be the time uh to be able to really just take a breath and listen to what's going on observe the children and um and if, if you're being pulled in every direction that's hard to do and time to reflect, to give the voice and the audience as well to kind of, you know, that it doesn't stop with the listening, that that there's the reflection to Absolutely. enable that yes. on an ongoing basis. That's right. And so that's not just time within the session, that's time afterwards for reflection. Um, some of the other things, yeah, so I was thinking about where you also had speakers talking about food, and I think food is such an important part of of children's daily life and the food that the children bring in they're bringing that from home so it's a, it is a very important thing for them it is meaning for them as well apart from just the nourishment um but you know how children eat their food when they need to eat it these are all choices that they should be able to make and not have to necessarily wait until lunchtime you know if a child is hungry um when they come in Maybe they didn't have time for breakfast. Maybe they didn't feel like eating then. So I think having the, you know control over when they eat is really important. Um, and I know that can be difficult, but um, 
you know, if the children are shown that this is, you know, you've put your lunch away, this is where it is. And, you know, that they have that understanding that if they need it, they can go get it and sit down quietly and eat if they want to do that. And that that's something that will be stopped. Sorry, I cut across you there. And who to eat with that they can uh, they can eat with their friends, that they can decide to, you know, have a snack with the buddies and um, have a chat about whatever they want to chat about. That's right. And you can still have limits about where the eating can happen. You know, it doesn't have to be that on the carpets, if you're worried about the yogurts getting spilled, you know, it could be that, okay, so this is the area. If you do want to eat, you can, you know, choose to eat at this table or this table in that area where, you know, away from the puzzles or whatever else is going on on other tables. So there are ways to manage that, but I I think it's an important one. Um, Yeah, and it's something that we've had a couple of of blogs about. So, uh, yeah, we can... uh, we can find the links to the blogs and, and, and share them about people who have, um, you know, explored that idea of kind of rolling lunchtime, uh, who were reluctant to try at the yeah. start, but have yeah. um, have found how it really works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think anything that gives the children control over their bodies. So when they eat, how they eat. Um, but, you know, I, another big thing that I've always noticed is that, you know, because children have runny noses and are often sneezing um, and our tendency in terms of just trying to keep things hygienic is to wipe noses for the children. So I think that's a really big one, thinking about the ways in which we might interfere with children's bodies without realizing that we're taking control over something that they can learn to do for themselves. Um, so one of the things we would have is the tissue container is on the wall, low at the child's height, but with a mirror underneath so they can see themselves. And that way you can teach the child, you know, that independence of going and looking and how, how they're blowing their noses. And I think it's not to underestimate how horrible that is to have somebody come up behind you and just put a tissue in front of your nose and clean away the mucus. Um, we Our don't often changing. think. Pardon? Or not and be changing. Exactly. You know, we, exactly. You know, sometimes scoop the child, yeah. get the whiff. You want the child to be comfortable and you kind of scoop the child up and take them to the nappy changing area yeah. without yeah. kind of saying, yes. you know, think you need to have a nappy change now. That's right. And and it's because we have a lot of responsibilities in, in relation to the children and all of the children. So we're conscious of things like hygiene and their comfort and their physical safety. And sometimes that just takes over instead of finding another way you know to make sure that the child is at the center of it that individual child is at the center of it and that we're taking into account what they might be thinking or feeling at the time and that idea of the the slow slow relational pedagogy that Geraldine French talked about in in an earlier podcast that uh, you know taking it easy taking the time to um go at, at the child's pace and follow the child's follow the child's lead it's just so vital in a respectful child-centered uh setting isn't it right and again that comes back to there being enough staff so that people don't feel under pressure to do everything all the time that they know if they leave the room and go slowly and take time with this child to do this individual thing whether it's putting a plaster on their knee or you know, listening to whatever the problem is that the child is upset about, that they feel that they can take the time to do that. But if the other person is left with 21 children, that can feel like, 
you know, you don't have the time. So resourcing the staff so that there's enough people in the room to take care of everything is, is important. Seeing the value in those moments. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think as well, you know, the children getting to solve their own problems is a big one for me um, in, in really listening to the voice of the child. So when the child does come and has a problem about something, and it could be something simple like, I can't do this, I can't put the pen, the marker, the lid back on the marker, that you we give the time to the child to sort that out themselves with support so that we, you know, scaffold and help, but don't do it for the child necessarily. And, you know, and, and show them they can do it by themselves with the help and and we acknowledge that with them as well, so that they become, you know, they have that sense that they can achieve things. Um, but there are other lots of um, kinds of problems that the children come with, you know, like it may be that they don't get the toy they want or somebody won't let them join in. And the importance of really listening to what is going on from the child's point of view in those situations. So I think listening is probably one of the most important things that early educators could give to children. It's a real gift that requires quite a lot of skill. I mean, it's easy to understand it and to grasp the concept, but practicing it is takes years to really stop yourself from doing before listening, from interrupting in the middle of listening, from thinking you know what they're going to say before they say it and finishing their sentences or even, you know, just making assumptions. There are just so many blocks to really listening to somebody that are hard for us to um, to learn. And partly, again, it has to do with that pressure where, you know, we, we just don't feel we have the time because there are so many other things happening. So you may not have the time to really deal with the, the child's emotional feelings at the time and also what they're actually trying to say to you why this is a problem for them that they can't join in the game or they can't get the toy they want or they want to go first and nobody will let them be first whatever it might be these are really important issues for the children and if we can pass on those skills by really listening to them and you know doing reflective listening and helping them to come up with a solution that works for them that's an amazing skill for the children to learn. And one of the things you had said to me was, you know, why do you, why do you have this ethos and why is it so important? And I suppose for me, um, I think, of course, respecting and listening to children and giving, you know, making sure that they have a voice is a value in itself. Um, but also, you know, the children of today are the adults of tomorrow. And if they can learn those skills and actually really, um, I suppose, embody being listened to and being respected and having a voice, then they'll carry that into adulthood. And I think that, you know, there's been so much um, unintended damage done to children because of the treatment of children by society, you know, throughout the generations and those experiences have been carried into everybody's adulthood. And, you know, then there's a long time of recovery or, you know, you know, trying to find your way in life with the um, 
the difficulties or the inhibitions or, you know, the complicated things that happen to you. Um, that if we can give that to children, you know, and, and at the very start, so start at the very beginning and begin with children and that all children have this um, this treatment of being listened to and having a voice and being respected, then those children are going to grow up to be, to know nothing else, to know mm. what it is to be respected and listened to. And so that's what they're going to carry into their adulthood. And that's how they will treat other people. And I think that's how the world will change for the better. So that's why I've been so interested in this, you know, for the last 40 years. This is this is what my vision is. Uh, oh, Joni, that's such a I mean, I hate to say that's a point to end on, but we're, we're kind of nearly out of time. But it's such a good, valuable point to end on. You started with the idea of children's democracy. And, you know, we sometimes complain about people not be, not voting or not taking uh, a de- their democratic role in society. But you're so right. I mean, if, if they have that from their earliest years, they'll see a value in it and they'll participate in in that way. So, Joni, we could have talked for ages more, but uh, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on Early Childhood Ireland's podcast today. And it's the last episode for now in in this series, but I think it's something that we'll that we'll come back to. Um, so thanks so much for um, for that wisdom and insight, and I ho- I'm sure everybody enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, so Joni, thanks a million. Thank you, Maura. And uh, thank you to our listeners for uh, tuning in and listening again. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell others and we'd love to hear your ideas for 